Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. As time goes by, you if you're all alone, you, you long for companionship. Many of us do, I think. And it's tough. It's tough to try to discern who you're going to let into your little bubble. You don't know, you know, particularly in the world that we live in nowadays, you don't know who's going to show up at your door. You don't know who's on the other end of the line. You don't know who you're texting with. Today on Body Bags, I, I want to talk about a young lady, Tammy Jo Blanton. And I want to talk about her murder. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Joining me is Jackie Howard, executive producer of Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Scary world out there, Jackie, when it comes to dating. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely, Joe. Tammy Jo Blanton was dating 41-year-old Joseph Oberhansley. And it was a very volatile relationship, and she broke up with him. She was so afraid of Oberhansley that she had the locks changed on her home. And here is an example of why. The day before Tammy Jo Blanton was found murdered, she had made a call to 911 at 2.52 a.m. She made the call reporting that her ex-boyfriend, Joseph Oberhansley, was outside her home and wouldn't leave. When officers arrived, Joseph was still outside. He said that his key would not work. When police asked to see Oberhansley's identification, it listed a different address than Tammy Jo Blanton's home. Tammy Jo Blanton explained to police that she had ended her relationship with Oberhansley, had her locks changed again, and that she wanted him to leave. He did. But the next morning, officers came back to Tammy Jo Blanton's house. That's because her friend and colleague, Sabrina Hall, had called police to ask them to do a welfare check on Tammy Jo Blanton. Tammy worked with Sabrina and was supposed to work that day. But when she didn't arrive to the office, Sabrina called her phone and a man answered. The man told Sabrina that he was Tammy's brother and that she was caring for their ill father. Sabrina Hall did not believe the man and made the phone call for police to check on Tammy. At that point, when the officers showed up at Blanton's home and knocked on the door, Oberhansley answered the door. The detectives noticed a cut on Oberhansley's hand, and they searched him, and at that point, they found a brass knuckle knife in his pocket that appeared to have hair and blood on it. At that point, investigators obtained a warrant for the home, and inside is where they found the body of Tammy Joe Blanton in the bathroom. And police at that point described it, this is their words, not mine, a big bloody mound of something in the bathtub. That phrase right there tells me that this poor woman's body has just been mutilated terribly. Yeah, that's a big indication there because, you know, you, you should not just if you're a young police officer that shows up, and, and these are what we refer to as beat cops. They're the folks that are out riding around their car. They're patrolling. They're responding to a call. It, it's always amazed me with these cases that I've worked and I've covered now in the media for a number of years where you're a beat cop and you've maybe you've, you've gone out to a noise disturbance or police officers, my friends that are police officers, one of the biggest annoyances that they have are responding to alarms on buildings. You hear it all the time on police radios. And it turns out to be nothing most of the time. The wind's blowing a door. Can you imagine coming off of a call like that? 
and you're summoned to this location. And you've just been doing something that seems so innocuous in your standard workaday world. And we're not talking about a place that's, <laughs> we're not talking about a place that's huge urban center here. We're just talking about suburban America. And you walk in to an environment that is bathed in blood. And you're thinking, what planet am I on all of a sudden? And that's the world that cops live in, where they just kind of have to throw the brakes on and readjust very quickly. And they begin to assess. When they showed up at the door and he wouldn't show the hands, that's that's a big indication for them. They call it putting the bracelets on. Bracelets are going to come out, the handcuffs, and you're you're going into custody at that moment in time. You're going to be arrested at that moment in time because you're non-compliant with a lawful order. And I got to tell you, thank God that they did. Because as was mentioned, he had these, I've heard people refer to them as a knuckle buster knife, which is, it's kind of a, if you think of what a brass knuckle looks like, it's something you can have your fingers going through and there's a contact edge where you can strike an individual with this metallic surface. But in addition to the brass knuckle, you've actually got a sharp edged instrument on the other end of it. And this this is a highly lethal weapon. He he could have at that moment, Tom, with these police officers, he could have attacked them. He could have ripped them to shreds or done great bodily harm. And thank God that they weren't hurt. I can't say the same for Tammy Joe Blanton. As investigators are starting to look at what had happened to Tammy Joe Blanton, they discovered that she had been stabbed repeatedly. So is this her cause of death? Absolutely. Her cause of death is sharp force injuries. That is this knife being driven into her body, not just once or twice or three times. I'm talking multiple times. She had multiple stab wounds all over her body, and it is absolutely horrific. And I've said this over and over again, and I'll never tire of saying it, but out of all of the causes of death that are out there, sharp force injuries, when you take that in a homicide, in the context of a homicide as the manner of death, it is the most personal. It is the most personal thing that can happen with maybe the exception of strangulation, but there's, there's a level of violence that goes in to sharp force injury, particularly stab wounds, because you're, it's an action where, and particularly in this case, and you begin to think about the, how this, this weapon is set up where your fingers are, are, threaded through this thing and you've got this blade so you've created a fist where you're you're gripping this this blade with this brass knuckle handle and you're driving it over and over and over there's a tremendous amount of force here here's here's the key though with stab wounds it's not like you're one and done in many of these cases this is a frenzied event you're withdrawing the blade and then you make a conscious effort that, that's important to emphasize here. You're making a conscious effort to now reinsert this weapon into someone's body. It's not like you strike them a single time on the head with a club or something like that. It's not like you shoot them a single time. This is withdrawing an edged weapon and then reinserting it. Withdrawing, reinserting it. And there's a, a pain response. If you're face-to-face -face with this victim that is should, should, potentially register with you. You're witnessing their life just kind of fading away before you. Maybe they're gasping. Maybe they're fighting you because in a normal primal response, 
you're going to try to fend this person off. But yet that knife is being plunged into this individual every single time. And lots of times with sharp force injury victims, we examine the palms of their hands very carefully. And this is absolutely horrific, but it's reality. The individual, in order to fend off the subject, will grasp the blade and the perpetrator with, again, will withdraw the blade from the individual's hand. And you'll have these large slice marks that you can appreciate on the palms of the hands and between the fingers, particularly one of the, the biggest area is the webbing between the thumb and the index finger. You'll see that sliced down to the bone many times. And that's the individual trying in that, at that primal level to try to fend off this attacker. I've seen blades actually pass through hands, all the way through hands and then into bodies because the person is putting their hand up in response, but this amount of force and it's, I think that it's, it's interesting in this case, because of the structure of this weapon, that he could generate a lot of force as he's driving this into her body. He's in a dominant position over her. My assumption is that she would be essentially in a supine position, which means face up. He's face to face with her. He's on top of her. All right. And straddling her, perhaps. And he's plunging this knife over and over and over again. There's nothing she can do to escape this event. But from a forensic standpoint, every time this occurs, this event, there's a transference of evidence. You have her bodily fluids, the blood transferring onto him, perhaps her hair. We talked about there was actually hair that was found on the surface of the knife. And many times the perpetrators will, in fact, cut themselves. This is not like shooting where you're at a distance, you pop off around at somebody. Now you're up close and personal. And as they're fighting, you're fighting. And many times the, the perpetrator will cut themselves. And so that blood leaches onto the body of the victim and also all of the surrounding area on the floor, the surfaces of any kind of furniture that happens to be there, a sink, a toilet, or a sofa even. You'll find what's referred to, and this is an important word, a commingling a commingling of blood that occurs. And so we have to kind of separate that out. And you begin to look at that and suddenly a narrative develops, scientifically at least, because we're not there to witness this event, but we can understand this narrative as it's being played out of what the dynamics of this event were. The dynamics. I, I want to talk about that a little bit, Joe, because I don't understand, and you and I have talked about blunt force, sharp force injuries often. But when you are stabbed like this so many times, is it a process of you bleeding out over time or did they actually hit the heart and your heart stopped immediately? I mean, is there ever a way to know which incident actually caused the death knoll? I absolutely love this question. This is why. <laughs> when, when, and I, I urge anybody that's truly interested in medical legal death investigation, find an autopsy report that involves multiple stab wounds. And one of the little caveats that's always contained in these autopsy reports is that the pathologist will say something like, even though these injuries are enumerated, you know, one through, I don't know, 26 or one through 100, this does not imply sequencing. There's no way to tell. The the only dividing line that you have in these kind of cases is, is there hemorrhage associated with this injury 
or is there no hemorrhage? And again, that's our big demarcation there between life and death. That means that if there is hemorrhage present, we know that the individual was insulted prior to death. That means their heart is still beating and you've got blood coursing through the body and you have this kind of hemorrhage that's into the soft tissues. And and then we look at it from the other perspective where we have injuries where there is no hemorrhage whatsoever. And so you have to divide Wait, wait, wait. So how can that be? How can you have an injury and there not be a hemorrhage? Well, you can have a postmortem injury. You can have a postmortem injury. You made a good point just a second ago when you talk about you plunge the knife into the heart and suddenly because there's mechanical damage to the heart at that point in time, the individual is going to go into arrest. They're going to die. All right. And it will be immediate in that case. So anything that might follow after that, and I know some people will argue with this because there's this kind of agonal thing that goes on, but it if the heart mechanically is damaged to the point where the individual goes into rest, the logical assumption is, is that there's no longer blood coursing through the body. So you're not necessarily going to present with hemorrhage in any kind of post-mortem wound because you're not going to have no longer the physical facility to, to hemorrhage into that specific area. And that's, in, that's very important because it goes into when you begin to look at this from the perspective of not just the forensics, but also kind of the mindset of the individual that was perpetrating this crime, because these are going to be questions that, that you're going to be asked on the stand if you're a forensic pathologist or a forensic specialist. They're going to ask you, well, you know, in your opinion, how many of these injuries were antemortem before death and how many were after? Well, if you've got antemortem, which means before death, you're talking about bringing about the, the death. But then from a lawyer's perspective, if they can demonstrate a, a prosecutorial perspective, they can demonstrate that there's all these postmortem injuries. Suddenly, suddenly the accused becomes such a bigger monster at that point in time, because now it, you weren't you weren't satisfied with killing or ending this person's life. You went to rip them to shreds and destroy what was left of their body. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Years ago, when I got out of my field full-time, I was diagnosed with PTSD. I had sleep disorder. I had depression. And for me, I had to turn to someone to talk to, somebody that could aid me along the path to healing, to restore me to that person that maybe I was at one point in time, to make me better for not just myself, but my family. If you're thinking about therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You can do this anytime that you like. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com bags today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com. That's better. H-E-L-P.com slash bags. When you walk onto a scene involving sharp force injuries, I, I got to tell you, out of all the cases I've worked, when you're in this environment where there's so much blood, it's, it's very perplexing 
it's a, it's a daunting task because you're sitting there and you're saying, oh my Lord, where, where, <laughs> where do I begin? Where do I begin? Because everything is literally, and I mean this in the literal sense, our friends in Great Britain use this term all the time, but in the literal sense, everything is a bloody mess. I, I don't even think that begins to cover what went on in this case, Joe. This is going to be so disturbing, and I want to warn people now, what we're going to talk about is truly disturbing. If you have children in the room, I can't imagine anybody would listen to us with children in the room, but if there are children in the room, you might want to put on some headphones because this is truly disturbing. Tammy Jo Blanton's body had been heavily mutilated. Not only was she stabbed in the head, chest, and neck, the front portion of her skull had been opened. A portion of her brain, lungs, and most of her heart had been damaged or removed, Joe. I, I really don't even know what kind of question to ask you about this because how can somebody do that and what kind of force would it take to crack open somebody's skull to remove the brain? It's important that you, and it's easy, this is easier said than done, trust me. We're not, the people that go out on these scenes, we're not super people. All right. We're, we're not, we're, we're not immune to the things that we're seeing. All right. Because if that's at that point in time, you checked your humanity out a long time ago, we're still impacted by this, but you have to be focused on the scientifically and to try to understand what, what you're seeing relative to the, the, the findings, the physical findings that's seen. Okay. You can't just check out and say, I'm not going to do this. I mean, you have to do this. You have to, to understand what's going on. You mentioned that, Yes, the frontal portion of her skull is missing at this point in time when they observed her. But also we have to explain that her chest was open to the point where the majority of her heart was absent, as well as a segment of her lung. I, I, I believe it's probably the left lung, probably the upper lobe of the left lung because it's immediately adjacent to the heart. And so you have a, a large gaping area there because it's not easy to get to. I mean, it's, you, you might think that it would be, you see movies and all that stuff, forget all that nonsense. It's, it's not an easy undertaking. This, this takes work. It takes a determined person in order to do this, particularly if you're not equipped with the tools, say for instance, that, you know, you might find in, in surgery or in the autopsy suite, Re remember <laughs> when, when they're doing surgery, they actually have a, an instrument that's referred to as a rib spreader. All right. And these things have been developed for this particular type of event as it applies to therapeutic surgeries that take place. Not in this sense though. This is, this is a mutilation. Uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to refer to this as a dismemberment where the body is taken apart in segments necessarily. This is an attempt to remove specific parts of the body, all right? When I think of dismemberment, I think about essentially taking apart at the joints, the wrists, the elbows, the shoulders, those sorts of things. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a mutilation at this point. We're talking about a mutilation. And to your point, it's you would have to sit there and think, well, what in the world am I looking at here? Because, you know, with a dismemberment, for instance, you're thinking if they're 
is obviously a homicide that's been committed. Well, why would somebody dismember somebody? Most of the time, people dismember bodies in order to make it easier to transport individual pieces so that they can dispose of them in a manner in which they put as much distance between themselves and the bodies. They can make it easily transportable, those sorts of things. You've entered into a different sphere here when you begin to think about mutilation and you're facilitating this. To get someone's skull open, and when I use the term daunting task, it's something that I worked for many years as an autopsy assistant, a path assistant, and participated in you know roughly 7,000 autopsies during that period of time. And if you do a complete autopsy, you you open, I'm going to be very frankly, you open the skull. That's what you do. But we have a very specific instrument that we use for that. It's called a bone saw, and it's an agitating saw. So you hear in the movies, they use this high-pitched buzzing sound that'll simulate one of these saws being used on bodies and that sort of thing. And it agitates. It's If people have ever had a cast removed, okay? If you've ever had a cast removed, you had a broken bone, that's very, very similar to this agitating saw. So just think about that for a second. That's not what was utilized here. I got kind of a, a reveal here is the fact that they they found a jigsaw, a jigsaw present scene. And this is not something with a big, robust blade. And it, it's something that's normally placed on a flat surface. You think about the shape of the skull. The shape of the skull is is rounded. So if you're using a jigsaw, say, to cut a piece of plywood or something like that, you place it on the edge and you move forward with it and you can cut out and that sort of thing. But you've got that under control. To have utilized a jigsaw in this particular case in order to open, say, this frontal bone, which is arguably the most robust bone in the human skull. You just tap your forehead, that sort of area. Very thick, very hard to get an edge on it. You've got this this saw blade that is going up and down, kind of like the only thing I can really equate it to is almost like the needle on a sewing machine that's going up and down like that, as opposed to the agitating saw that's used to remove a cast or a bone saw. It kind of goes backwards and forth like that. And then the blades are rounded. It's easy to use. In this case, this would have taken so much time. I mean, it would have taken a protracted period of time. And again, there's a certain amount of soft tissue dissection that would probably have to go on. That means you have to remove most of the time any kind of soft tissue that would impede that blade's ability to cut through that bony surface. And then once you have at least made a single entrance into that bony surface, how how exactly, what direction are you going to go now? Are you going to take the tip of this, you know, remember it's acting like a, a sewing machine going up and down, up and down, up and down. Do you insert it into this little defect that you've created and then kind of buzz it out along that area? If this is something that you have no experience with, and let's face it, I can't imagine there's a lot of people out there that have experience with mutilation of human remains. What, what do you do as you're sitting there in this world that you have painted with another human being's blood and you're holding this individual's head in your lap as you're doing this? Do you have it braced in some way? When she was found, she was actually found in the tub covered with what turned out to be a tarp. And so the 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 workings of the scene are going to be very complicated from a forensic standpoint to understand what was physically done there, what the position of her body was at that particular time, what the position of the perpetrator's body was relative to her body and the rest of the environment. 
you're going to have a lot of transfer of blood evidence and trace evidence and everything else. It would be an absolute nightmare to figure this out. In my wildest dreams, I, I can't even begin to kind of understand how you prepare yourself if you're the perpetrator of a of a mutilation. How, how do you prepare yourself? Uh, you know, how, how do you determine what tools to show up with? How, how, how do you figure out the logistics of it? Is this just something that is done at the spur of the moment and you, you grab whatever is handy? Or is this something that you're pre-prepared to do at that given time? I don't know. It boggles the mind. It does. And I think the jury and the judge, when Oberhansley was charged in Tammy Jo Blanton's death, it was something they truly had to consider because Oberhansley claimed to be incompetent and, in fact, was deemed incompetent to stand trial. So there were claims that Oberhansley was schizophrenic. He had in the past, Joe, you can kind of weigh in on this here in just a second, he had been accused and convicted of shooting his high school girlfriend. She died. He had also shot his mother. So he had been convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 12 years where he had killed the mother of his child. He said he was in a meth rage. He also shot his mother. And ultimately, though, Oberhansley was deemed sane at the time of Tammy Jo Blanton's murder. But here's the truly horrendous, as if we've not talked about a terrible crime here, Joe. Joseph Oberhansley was a cannibal. He ate Tammy Jo Blanton's brain, parts of her heart and parts of her lung. I, I'm really, truly at a loss for words, Joe. Yeah, talk about plumbing the depths of depravity. You, you begin to think about this and you say, well, we've got a mutilation. Now we've got an individual that has taken organs from somebody that they were involved in a relationship with. And not only had he eviscerated her, which means removal of organs, but he had prepared the organs. He essentially prepared them on the stove. And then he ingested Again, I think our, our default position here has to be the science behind this, what, because <laughs> I, I don't know that it, it is even possible to explain the rationale for having done this. But what we do know is that these elements were, in fact, consumed. And uh, I, there's one part of this is, is kind of kind of fascinating to me, I guess, as fascinating as it could possibly be, was the fact that he had claimed at one point in time that the removal of the brain essentially was his attempt to find her third eye and this is a very metaphysical thing and it's not something i fully grasp but the the at a base level the third eye is this metaphysical presence that's within the brain and can see things on a different plane and these sorts of things now, i do know that some of the items that were found at the at the scene included tongs and they were covered with blood. And I think these are tongs very similar to maybe salad tongs or tongs that you would use when preparing a meal on a grill, this sort of thing. And if 
you have to understand with human anatomy, if you're opening up just one portion of the skull and removing that and then going into that, there is an attempt on the part of the person because you can't remove it the way we do at autopsy. There is a process where you would literally have to dig out the brain or scoop out the brain in order to make this happen. And then purpose to prepare the brain so that you can ingest it. And one point that we need to go back to here is that at a very early age, when he was still in Utah, he had demonstrated a, a very violent behavior. If you're to the point where you can shoot the mother of your own child, and she's just a teenager, she's just a teenager, he, he cold-bloodedly shot her and then shot his own mother and then I guess when he began to assess that at that particular time, decided that he was going to take his own life and shot himself as well. So that gives you an indication as to mindset, you know, because people, uh, I hate the word why. <laughs> it's, I, I, don't, I don't particularly like it because it's not very scientific most of the time. Because, you know, why is, is there are many degrees to why. We'll just say that. It's hard to, to quantify why. Um, but you sit there and you, you begin to think, well, why? I think that we have to fall back to how. How was this done? Or how could he have done this? And we have indications that he was very violent in the past. But yet, here he is. He's out. He's out of incarceration. He's made his way to Indiana. And when his trial was going on and when he was initially charged, there was some indication that he was perfectly lucid. He had attempted to have a, a spontaneous news conference at one point in time as he's shackled walking around. I can only think, can you imagine being the, the, the deputies that are having to escort this guy around? You think he's in shackles there and the, what he's perpetrated, you're conveying this guy from one area to another. And again, it goes back to the people that initially showed up at the scene of Tammy Joe's homicide. I can I think that that would transfer over to these individuals too. They're having to deal with him on a regular basis. And he seemed perfectly lucid. He's, he's saying that uh, he is not, he is not in fact insane that there are other people to blame. He even stated that he gave them an alternative reason for what happened, that he was knocked out at the scene. And there were two people that entered her home and did this horrible deed to Tammy Joe, but yet they let him survive. Okay. So you're going to have to, teach me here, Joe, because I'm hearing everything that you're saying, but I can't get past the part of the word eat. Okay. He ate her organs. So cannibalism. I, well, I get, well, I can't ask you why, because you don't like the word why. Tell me about cannibalism. Is it just you people who do this have a desire to taste the flesh? Do they have a desire to, you know, I, I understand in some other cultures in ancient times, the idea was if you killed someone, a, a warrior, and you ate their organs, that it gave you power. I mean, what is it with cannibalism? Yeah, it's from an anthropological standpoint, when these people are studied, you have what's referred to as kind of a ritualized cannibalism, like you, you had mentioned, you know, where you're going to eat a portion of your 
enemy's body and it gives you strength and all those sorts of things. I think if I'm not mistaken, I think that there's one tribe that still participates in cannibalism in New Guinea a very isolated group of people. And again, it's a form of ritualized ingestion of human remains. You have a separate section that is survival. You have people that that are dependent upon another human being's body as sustenance. We think back to the Donner Party. That's many people for them. That's their their default position back in the 1800s when they were trying to get across the pass and they were frozen in and they had they had nothing to nourish themselves with. There's a number of people that have been at sea, I think, that had to resort to cannibalism. And of course, famously, we've we've got the, the athletic team that crashed in the Andes back in the, the 70s. The book was written about them alive, I think. But that's for survival, all right? What What's the really curious group here are these homicidal cannibals. And how do you study this? Because, yeah, there are there are stories of this. There are certainly cases. You know, I guess famously the most obvious one is, is Dahmer that comes to mind, you know, in the last 40 years. And he's, he again, he was, the reason he made the news like he did, I think, is because it was, it was so shocking. So shocking. And the public couldn't get enough of it. They were watching this day after day. I had friends that were involved in the investigation up in Milwaukee in this in this case. And yeah, it was absolutely horrific. And he, but he was very systematic about this. He would choose victims and this sort of thing. And there's all kinds of psychopathology that went on with him. But still, he was deemed sane. He was deemed sane. He he wasn't he wasn't a raving maniac. He was very much in control. I, it's very difficult, I think, for us to get past this as well. It should be past this idea of consumption of another person's body. Again, back to the why question. I, I don't know that we will ever have an answer to why that is purely definitive. I, I would think at least that there is some kind of power thing that's going on. Not only am I going to stab you to death, not only am I going to sexually assault you. And again, that's another piece to Tammy Joe's case. There's also evidence that he sexually assaulted her. And again, we don't know if that was anti-mortem before death or if it was post-mortem where you have a necrophiliac event that's going on. And again, that's something that Dahmer did. He was a necrophile, which means he had a sexual orientation toward the dead. We don't know what the status was with that. Again, power, control, and then total dominance, maybe in these individuals' minds, is the consumption of the remains. They've dominated this individual in every other way possible. And I'll show you, I'll even bring it down to the point where I'm going to ingest your mortal remains. I don't know that there's any any kind of peace anybody could have over this. But just know this, Joseph Oberhansley was convicted. He was convicted, and he's been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. 
BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.